So we get started this morning, I'm going to ask you to do three things. The first is to pray with me. We need to ask the Lord to go with us. So let's do that. Father in heaven, we're about to dive into the deep water of Scripture. So we're going to ask you to help us. First, by limiting the distractions in the room. They could come from any number of different places. So we're just asking you to limit those. Help us all concentrate. Help us to dial in. And then, Father, we're going to ask you to help us to be good listeners and good understanders. We're going to ask that you make some cloudy things clear. And we're going to ask that you teach us. And we're making ourselves available to you for that, Lord. So we're asking all of this with great faith. And we're looking forward to what you do with it. Father, would you inspire us through the words that we are about to read? And then help us hold on to them. In Jesus' name, amen. Now the second thing I'm going to ask you to do is open your Bibles to the book of 2 Kings. 2 Kings, the 17th chapter. Hopefully you brought a Bible with you this morning. If you did, just open to that one place and stay there. We're going to set up housekeeping in that chapter. Now, if you attend worship with us on a regular basis, you know that we jump around a lot in Scripture and we pull Old Testament and New Testament together and we show you the way both of those are, are woven into one another and we will validate a lot of different things with truth from other places. But today, we're just going to stay right here in this one chapter. I will reference some other passages, but I'm going to ask you to keep your attention tuned in to 2 Kings chapter 17. And then the third thing that I'm going to ask you to do is to keep an old English proverb in mind as we make our way through the next several moments. We'll put it up on the screen for you. The proverb says, Consider well who you are, where you came from, what you do, and where you are going. Now again, that's an old English proverb. Listen to it one more time. Consider well who you are, where you came from, what you do, and where you are going. Now we're going to keep that in front of you as we make our way through this message. I would encourage you somewhere at the front cover of your Bible to write those words down so that you never lose sight of them. Consider well who you are, where you came from, what you're doing, and where you are going. Those words, this old English proverb, can help keep us on the right path if we will allow it to. Now, before we get to 2 Kings chapter 17, I need to set the stage for you with a bit of Old Testament history. There is a whole lot that we could share, and trust me, I was tempted to share a lot with you. In fact, as I started writing the message, I got it going and and then looked back and thought to myself, if I preach all of this, we can forget about lunch, we can forget about supper, and possibly breakfast tomorrow. So I'm setting that aside and just trying to grab the high points for you. But I really want you to listen. I really want you to stay with me through this. There is a reason that we're setting the stage this way. And there is a point to it. Three years after Solomon died, King Solomon, David's son, the kingdom of Israel was divided into two parts. The northern part of the kingdom we know as Israel. The capital city, Samaria. The southern part of the kingdom we know as Judah. The capital city, Jerusalem. Through the years, the kings of Israel were all bad, with the possible exception of one. Now, there's a lot of debate about that one. I lean to the side that he was a very good king. 
Other people say it was somewhat mixed. But all of the other kings of Israel were bad. Every one of them. They refused to do the things that God told them to do. They refused to do the things that they knew were important to the Lord. They were stubborn and they held their own path no matter what. The kings of Judah were a little bit better. Throughout the course of their history, about a third of their kings were good. They followed the ways of the Lord. The rest of them, two-thirds of them, were very bad. They chose their own path. They did their own thing. And then God brought judgment on both nations. Israel and Judah alike suffered the judgment of the Lord. And when that judgment came, it came swiftly and it came sternly. And they still somewhat live under that judgment until such a time that God will lift it. Now there have been a few moments where it has appeared that God was lifting the judgment and He was bringing about restoration, but that restoration is not yet complete. When we get to the 16th chapter of Second Kings, we find a man named Ahaz sitting on the throne of the southern kingdom of Judah in Jerusalem, and he was an evil man, terribly evil. This is how bad he was. Ahaz actually sacrificed his own children. Listen to that. He sacrificed his own children to false gods, trying to win their favor. In an act of worship to these false gods, he gave the life of his children. Second Chronicles chapter 26 through 28 mirrors Second Kings chapter 16 and 17. And the chronicler would write that he sacrificed his sons. Now this is why that is so bad. Every male child in Judah was dedicated to the Lord. So Ahaz took his sons who were dedicated to Jehovah God and sacrificed them to false gods. He was an evil man. Not only was he evil, he was also a weak, weak leader. When the king of Israel and the king of Syria were set to march against him, He formed an alliance with the king of Assyria. Now, the king of Assyria had a vast army and he controlled a vast amount of land. And so Ahaz believed that he would be victorious simply by becoming an ally to Assyria. But in order to get the king of Assyria's attention, he had to do some pretty heinous things like this. He took the devoted things of God out of God's temple and paid off the king of Assyria with those things. And then he desecrated the altar of God in God's temple, all in an act to get the king of Assyria to side with him and become his protector. That's why he did it. The devoted things of God, they were gone, never to come back. They were gone because the king of Judah said, I would rather have your protection than God's protection. And that's what he did. He should have known better. For all intents and purposes, he was nothing but a bootlicker. That's all he was. He was just trying to win the favor of this foreign king. He was trying to win his protection when he had the protection of Almighty God on his side. What a tragedy. To the north, during Ahaz's reign in the south, we find Hosea. Hosea was the king of Israel. He will be the last king of Israel. There has not been one since. He is the one credited with the demise of the nation. Hosea was as evil as Ahaz was. 
He formed alliances the same way Ahaz did. Hosea would actually form an alliance with the king of Assyria, but then he would stop funding that alliance and he would try to form one with the king of Egypt so that the king of Egypt would become his protector. But it didn't last very long. The king of Assyria marched against him. And when he marched against Israel, he did it with a vengeance. I want you to see what happens. We're in 2 Kings chapter 17, verse 1. In the twelfth year of Ahaz, king of Judah, Hosea, the son of Elah, began to reign in Samaria over Israel, and he reigned nine years. Now, I want you to know that he was one of those evil kings in Israel that shouldn't have been evil. His father, Jotham, was a good king. He followed God. His son, Hezekiah, was a very good king. He followed God. Hosea should have as well. Verse 2. And he did what was evil in the sight of the Lord, yet not as the kings of Israel who were before him. Against him came up Shalmaneser, king of Assyria, and Hosea became his vassal and paid him tribute. He put the nation of Israel in servitude to Assyria. That's the exact same thing that Ahaz had done earlier. So he is following the path of what happened in the southern kingdom. And now the nation of Israel are vassals or servants of the Assyrian kingdom. Verse 4. But the king of Assyria found treachery in Hosea, for he had sent messengers to sow king of Egypt and offered no tribute to the king of Assyria as he had done year by year. Therefore the king of Assyria shut him up and bound him in prison. Then the king of Assyria invaded all the land and came to Samaria, and for three years he besieged it. So the king of Assyria has imprisoned Hosea, and now he's marching against the northern kingdom. He is marching against all of Israel, and he has found himself surrounding the capital city of Samaria, and for three years, three years, the battle raged to hold that city. If the capital fell, the entire nation fell. So the children of Israel fought for all they were worth, but it wasn't enough. And finally, Samaria fell to the Assyrians. And listen to what happens, verse 6. In the ninth year of Hosea, the king of Assyria captured Samaria, and he carried the Israelites away to Assyria and placed them in Hala and on the Habor, the river of Gozan, and in the cities of the Medes. Now here's what he did. When the Assyrians came in and they captured all of Israel, they deported the Israelites. They took them out of their home country and they sent them to all these foreign places so that they could dilute the lineage of David. They took them out of there so that they could destroy their religion. They took them out of their homeland so that they could destroy their confidence, so that they could take everything from them. That's why they did this. So he took them and he placed them in these foreign lands, places that they knew nothing of, and he demoralized them, basically destroying the nation of Israel. And like I said, Hosea would be the last king to sit on a throne over that nation. It wouldn't be for another 250 years before the Jewish people started to trickle back in. When the Assyrians took them out, they left a few people. They left the poor, the sick the old, the criminals, those that society often overlooks, they left in the middle of that place. And then they send people in from foreign lands 
to intermingle with them, thus destroying the entire nation and making it so that no one can ever reclaim it. 250 years later, after the Babylonians defeated the Assyrians and the Babylonians had this massive empire, some Jews would start to trickle back into the land, but they would never possess it again. Not until 1948. In 1948, Israel became a nation again. They have not had a king sit on a throne there. They've had prime ministers. They have been able to exist as a sovereign nation, but not one under the rule of a monarchy. Not yet. God has yet to finish the establishment of that country. But some of you are old enough to remember a world without an Israel. In 1948, biblical prophecy started to be fulfilled when they reclaimed that land as a Jewish state. But it is still under battle. People are still fighting over the geography of that land. People are still fighting, trying to say that the Jews don't possess it because God kicked them out. Because God brought His judgment. Because God said enough is enough. It has long been said by biblical scholars that Jeremiah is the author of First and Second Kings. I believe he probably was. Jeremiah tells us in a very powerful and succinct way why all of this happened. Listen to this, starting in verse 7. And this occurred because the people of Israel had sinned against the Lord their God, who had brought them up out of the land of Egypt from under the hand of Pharaoh, king of Egypt, and had feared other gods and walked in the customs of the nations whom the Lord drove out before the people of Israel, and in the customs that the kings of Israel had practiced. And the people of Israel did secretly against the Lord their God things that were not right. They built for themselves high places in all their towns, from watchtower to fortified city. They set up for themselves pillars and ashram on on every high hill and under every green tree. And there they made offerings on all the high places, as the nations did whom the Lord carried away before them. And they did wicked things, provoking the Lord to anger. And they served idols, of which the Lord had said to them, You shall not do this. Yet the Lord warned Israel and Judah by every prophet and every seer, saying, Turn from your evil ways and keep my commandments and my statutes in accordance with all the law that I commanded your fathers and that I sent to you by my servants, the prophets." But they would not listen. They were stubborn, as their fathers had been, who did not believe in the Lord their God. They despised His statutes and His covenant that He made with their fathers and the warnings that He gave them. They went after false idols and became false, and they followed the nations that were around them, concerning whom the Lord had commanded them that they should not do like them. And they abandoned all the commandments of the Lord their God and made for themselves metal images of two calves, and they made an Asherah and worshipped all the host of heaven and served Baal. And they burned their sons and their daughters as offerings and used divination and omens and sold themselves to do evil in the sight of the Lord, provoking him to anger. Therefore the Lord was very angry with Israel and removed them out of his sight. None was left but the tribe of Judah only. Judah also did not keep the commandments of the Lord their God, but walked in the customs that Israel had introduced. And the Lord rejected all the descendants of Israel and afflicted them and gave them into the hand of plunderers until he had cast them out of his sight. When he had torn Israel from the house of David, they made Jeroboam the son of Nebat king. And Jeroboam drove Israel from following the Lord and made them commit great sin. The people of Israel walked in all the sins that Jeroboam did. They did not depart from them. 
until the Lord removed Israel out of his sight, as he had spoken by all his servants, the prophets. So Israel was exiled from their own land to Assyria until this day. That's why the judgment of God fell on Israel. And just a couple of generations later, it will fall on Judah as well. And both of them will find themselves uprooted and thrown out of their land. They will see that land desecrated. They will see that land utterly destroyed. And like I said, it wouldn't be until 1948 that things would start to change. All of this happened in the year 722 B.C. In 1948, things started to change. Nearly 2,500 years of judgment came to rest on them because they wouldn't follow God. But one of the most intriguing things out of all of this, and this is where I really want us to get to today, so this has been a super long introduction. Thanks for hanging with me. This is the part that I really want you to see. A brand new nation rose out of this. A whole new people group came out of everything that just took place. And it's a people group that you will hear about in the New Testament, but you may very well have never known where they came from or how they got to where they're at. So I want to clear some of that up for you today. They are known as the Samaritans. The Samaritans. They're mentioned 12 times in the Bible. Once in the Old Testament in 2 Kings chapter 17 and 11 times in the New Testament. Verse 24. This is where they came from. The king of Assyria brought people from Babylon, Kutha, Ava, Hamath, and Sepharvaim and placed them in the cities of Samaria instead of the people of Israel. And they took possession of Samaria and lived in its cities. Now that's where the Samaritans came from. If you're a note taker, you may want to write in your Bible, and I did this this past week, above verse 24, I wrote the birth of the Samaritans. Because you may wonder and wonder and wonder and wonder when you get to the New Testament and you hear Jesus talking about the Samaritans and you hear the book of Acts about the gospel being carried to the Samaritans, you may wonder, who were they? Where did they come from? Don't make the mistake of just throwing the Samaritans into the same category that we do the Canaanites and the Hittites and the Hittites and the Jebusites and all the ites. The Samaritans are a different people group that came out of the judgment of God. After all of the Jews were taken out of the land of Israel and away from the capital city of Samaria, the Assyrian king imported all of these other people and they intermingled with the Jews, the social outcast of the Jews that remained in that land and they started to reproduce. And that's where the Samaritans came from. That's how they got their start. Verse 24 lays it out for us. That's it. That's the birth of a new people group. So then, as you study the Samaritans out, what you will find out is 250 years later, under the the reign of the Babylonians, when the Jews started to trickle back into the land, they believed that it was theirs. And they didn't want the Samaritans to live there any longer. They believed that they should be in control. But the Samaritans were saying, we've lived here for 250 years. This is our land. You're not going to come back in here and kick us out. We have already established this as our home place. And listen to some of the things they did. And these are the battles that rage between the Jews and the Samaritans. The Samaritans said that the real place of worship was Samaria, right at the base of Mount Gerizim. They didn't believe that true biblical worship of Jehovah was supposed to take place in Jerusalem. 
in Judah, they believed it belonged in Israel around Samaria. So here's what they did. They built their own temple right outside of Samaria on a much smaller scale than what existed in Jerusalem. They built their own temple and they started to worship there. But their worship was polluted because they chose people from among them to be their high priests. Now that was against Old Testament law in and of itself because the priests could only come from the line of Levi and the line of Levi was in the southern part of the kingdom. And so they're choosing their own priests, not caring about what God had to say. And then in their own religious worship, they said the only books of the Old Testament that mattered are the first five books, what we know as the Pentateuch. And so that's all they held to, just those five books. Everything else they consider a distortion brought back in by the Jews from Babylon. So they don't want to hear about the prophets. They don't want to hear about the Psalms. They don't want to hear through the Proverbs. They don't want to hear any of that. Only the first five books that hold to the law. So they battle with the Jews even today over what real worship looks like and where real worship should happen. Should it be in Jerusalem or should it be in Samaria? The temple that they built was destroyed through the years and recently, and by that I mean in the last 20, 30 years, archaeologists have actually found the Samaritan temple, the foundations of it. They've discovered it, they have uncovered it, proving the things that exist in Scripture once again through archaeology. But also they have discovered that the Samaritan practices didn't last. There are only 810 known Samaritans still alive. At the most recent census, 810 were identified, all of them living right around the city of Samaria, the Old Testament city of Samaria. All of them basically not living in hiding, but somewhat living undercover. There are a few reported to be on the West Bank, but 810 known Samaritans living around that city. That's all that exists of them today. It's quite an interesting process to see how God brings all that about. And maybe, just maybe, the reason that there are only 810 that exist today is detailed in the next couple of verses. Pick up with me in verse 25. And at the beginning of their dwelling there, they did not fear the Lord. Therefore the Lord sent lions among them, which killed some of them. So the king of Assyria was told, The nations that you have carried away and placed in the cities of Samaria do not know the law of the God of the land. Therefore he has sent lions among them. And behold, they are killing them because they do not know the law of the God of the land. Now if you were bored at the beginning of the sermon, as we are going through all of that history, all of that boredom should have just fallen away. At the moment that I said God sent lions among them, I was really expecting a corporate gasp where everybody would just go, What? So let's try that together. Let's all just gasp in surprise. One, two, three. He sent lions among them. (gasps) That's what God did. That is amazing. He sent lions among them. They now possess the land, but they're not following the things of God. They're in His living room, and they are not paying attention to Him. And though God allowed the Israelites to fade over time, He didn't allow that with the Samaritans, so He sent lions among them. That, thank you. You don't have to do it every time, but way to go. Because I'm going to say it a lot more. 
There's this statement in the old movie Hoosiers. I'm sure many of you have seen it that is really quite pertinent here. When Gene Hackman is battling with the current interim coach over who's going to be in charge of the basketball team, the coach looks at him and says, it is one thing to get naked and howl at the moon. It is another thing altogether to do it in my living room. That is a pretty good statement. And for the most part, that's exactly what the Samaritans were doing. They didn't care that they were in the living room of God. It didn't matter to them. So they brought in all of their false gods and established their own form of worship. And God sent lions. He sent lions. Maybe that's not really resonating with you the way it should. So here's an idea of what that might have looked like. Imagine if you were standing on the road and that's coming at you. And it's coming at you in such a way that you know there's no escaping it. Those lions are bringing the judgment of God and you are now in their path. God sent lions among them because they didn't respect his living room. Because they weren't paying attention to the things that God said matters. So he sent lions. Doesn't that just give you goosebumps? Imagine the Jews that knew what the Egyptians went through when Moses was leading the Exodus. The ten plagues that came on them. The Egyptians thought gnats were bad. They thought frogs were bad. God is now sending lions. And the Bible says the lions were killing them. So look at what happens. We're going to pick up in verse 27. Then the king of Assyria commanded, Send there one of the priests whom you carried away from there, and let him go and dwell there and teach them the law of the God of the land. So one of the priests whom they carried away from Samaria came and lived in Bethel and taught them how they should fear the Lord. So the king of Assyria responded. He said, Hold it. This is Jehovah God. This is the God of the land that we are living in right now that's bringing this judgment upon us. He is the God of the lions. So we need to respond. And what a great response. You find one of the priests, you find a scholar, and you send him back, and let's teach these people how to live in the Lord's living room. That's what they did. A little bit. Just a little bit. They didn't do it the way they should have. Verse 29. But every nation still made gods of its own and put them in the shrines of the high places that the Samaritans had made. Every nation in the cities in which they lived the men of Babylon made Succoth Benoth. The men of Cuth made Nurgle. The men of Hamath made Ashima. And the Avites made Nibhaz and Tartak. And the Sephrabites burned their children in the fire to Adramelech and Anamelech, the gods of Sephravain. They also feared the Lord and appointed from among themselves all sorts of people as priests of the high places who sacrificed for them in the shrines of the high places. So they feared the Lord but also served their own gods after the manner of the nations from whom they had been carried away. Now here's what the, the Samaritans were really guilty of. They were guilty of something that still exists today called pluralism. Pluralism is a, it's an abomination. It's where we say we believe in God, but we believe in a lot of other things. Here's the, the basic definition. This comes from Wikipedia of pluralism, dealing particularly with religious pluralism. It's the acceptance of all religious paths as equally valid, promoting coexistence. There is no place for pluralism. Webster takes it a little bit deeper when they write a theory that pluralism is a theory that there are more than one or more than two kinds of ultimate reality. When we apply that to religion, here's what we're really saying. This is what pluralism teaches. that There are many paths to God and we can just pick the one that works for us. 
There are many paths into a relationship with Him, and whichever path you're on is good. The problem with that is that that's not what the Bible teaches. Jesus says, I am the way, the truth, and the life, and no man comes to the Father except through me. That's it. There is no room for pluralism. All the way back in 2 Kings chapter 17, there was no room for it. So God sent lions. God got their attention. But they didn't pay attention to that. In their pluralism, they, they chose to worship the Lord a little bit. You cannot choose to worship the Lord a little bit. You choose to worship God or you choose not to. That's the way it works. And you can't have other gods that you sprinkle among it and whichever one suits you today, that's the one that you follow. That's pluralism. And it's an abomination. It truly is an abomination. The Samaritans were on what I would refer to as a very rapid fade. Now the Israelites, it had been a slow fade. They had entered the promised land and God gave them opportunity after opportunity to follow Him and to worship Him and to do the things that God told them to do. Chance after chance after chance. But for the Samaritans, it was much quicker. The fade was much quicker. They came into the land. They did not respect the land. They did not respect the God in whose land they were living. And God sent lions. He sent lions to deal with them and to get their attention. And they responded the way they should have. They said, let's bring a priest in so that the priest can teach us. And they started to do what they were supposed to, but then they started to fade. And it came so fast. And then did you catch what they did? They started to create their own gods. Did you catch that? This wasn't bringing in other gods from distant lands. They started to create their own gods, their own forms of worship. And you probably heard some names like Tartak that you've never heard before. And that may have you saying, who, who in the world is that? Or what is Tartak? Tartak is a foreign false god. And it sounds foreign to us the same way if these Samaritans 2,500 years later, if they were living with us today, might say, who are these gods they serve? Because here's where this gets really personal. Friends, we do the same thing. We create false gods. Now, if we look at it geographically, we can look at what some of those are. In the state of Washington, false gods might be marijuana. The state of Colorado, same thing. In Washington, D.C., false gods may very well be politics. In New York City, false gods may be money. In all kinds of different places, it's occupation and hobbies and power. Cal St. Ange was talking with me before the service. He's in the, the group that I pray with on Sunday mornings. And we were talking a little about this and he said there was a point in his life where he had to sell a pickup because a pickup was becoming a false god to him. Now let that sink in for just a minute. If you were a Samaritan that lived 2,500 years ago in Israel, but now all of a sudden you had been catapulted forward in time and you heard people talking about things that sounded like the worship of a pickup, you would say, what is a pickup? What is a tartak? Same kind of idea. False gods. And those false gods caused the fade. We see it all the time in modern Christianity. People come to know the Lord and they are zealous for God, but then they start to drift away. They start to fade. That fade always happens. It always happens through compromise. That's what causes it. Pick back up with me and I'll show you what this looks like. We're in verse 34. 
To this day they do according to their former manner. They do not fear the Lord and they do not follow the statutes or the rules or the law or the commandments that the Lord commanded the children of Jacob whom he named Israel. The Lord made a covenant with them and commanded them, you shall not fear other gods or bow yourselves to them or serve them or sacrifice to them, but you shall fear the Lord who brought you out of the land of Egypt with great power and with an outstretched arm. You shall bow yourselves to him and to him you shall sacrifice. And the statutes and the rules and the law and the commandment that he wrote for you, you shall always be careful to do. You shall not fear other gods and you shall not forget the covenant that I have made with you. You shall not fear other gods but you shall fear the Lord your God, and he will deliver you out of the hand of all your enemies. However, they would not listen, but they did according to their former manner. So these nations feared the Lord and also served their carved images. Their children did likewise, and their children's children as their fathers did, so they do to this day. So they knew what was right. It was laid out for them. God said, this is the way it should be. Don't let other gods come in. But then they started to compromise, saying, we can let the other gods in just a little bit because that's familiar to us. We can let the other gods in a little bit because it feels good to us. We can let the other gods in because the other gods tell me what I want to hear. And now all of a sudden the fate is coming because the compromise began. And when we compromise the first time, it may be really difficult, but then the second time and the third time and the fourth time, it becomes much easier. And here's why. Because compromise is a lot more of an attitude than it is an action. That's why it's so easy. Because it's an attitude that becomes an action. If compromise was nothing but an action, we could decide to stop it. But because it's an attitude, it takes root within us and we begin to drift. I like the way Charles Stanley sums this up. Take a look with me. On the surface, a simple action may go almost unnoticed. It appears to be nothing more than a slight shift in the landscape, an insignificant change that does not matter. However, deep within a person's heart, a landmine lays hidden. Something very deadly is underway. It is compromise, an attitude that develops and grows stronger with neglect and time. That's how we fade away from the Lord. And that is one of the most effective tools of our enemy. And it's the very tool that he has used since time began. Go back into the book of Genesis and you will see him convincing Adam and Eve to compromise the truth that they knew. And then chart your way all the way through the Bible. You'll see the same thing. Chart your way through your own life. You'll see the same thing. It all begins with compromising just a little bit. The first time may be hard, but after that it's going to come really easy. From time to time, God may send lions. He may send some real difficulties your way to get your attention and get you back to where you need to be. And if you respond the right way, then the relationship is solid. You're back in his living room. You're back where you need to be, understanding that that's what you want more than anything else. I want to live in the living room of God. I want to be with him all the time. I want to live in such a way that it is pleasing to him and therefore it becomes pleasing to me. That's what I want. So I won't compromise. I won't allow that attitude to take root. I will stay grounded with the Lord. I will stay ever in His presence. Remembering, remembering well who I am, where I came from, what I'm doing, and most certainly where I'm going. Those questions, every one of those dimensions will govern my attitudes so that I don't fade, I don't drift. And rather than having lions charging at me, I can experience the peace with this lion. I can be on the side of the lions rather than standing in front of them. 
That's what happens when we choose a different path. There's an antidote to compromise and fades, whether they are slow or rapid. We find it in the Latin in an expression that you may have never heard. It's an old Latin expression, but it's a good one. It's quorum deo. Quorum deo. That is the antidote to pluralism. That is the antidote to compromise. That is the antidote to the attitude to live a quorum deo life. Here's the actual definition of it. Quorum deo means to live one's life, entire life, in the presence of God, under the authority of God, to the glory of God. That's a quorum deo life. And it should be the goal of every believer. R.C. Sproul in his teaching on quorum deo says this, To live in the presence of God is to understand that whatever we are doing and wherever we are doing it, we are acting under the gaze of God. To be aware of the presence of God is also to be acutely aware of His sovereignty. Living under divine sovereignty involves more than a reluctant submission to sheer sovereignty that is motivated out of a fear of punishment. It involves recognizing that there is no higher goal than offering honor to God. Our lives are to be living sacrifices, oblations offered in a spirit of adoration and gratitude. That is quorum Deo. And that is a decision that we have to make. But to make a decision for a quorum Deo life sets the stage to avoid lions, to not have them coming in and killing some of us, to not live under the judgments of God, but to live in the presence of God. And that should be what every one of us as a believer desires. I want to live in the presence of God. I want to live a quorum Deo life. A week ago, tonight, I was in a men's study at Josh Erickson's house. He was leading, doing a great job of it. Taught a wonderful lesson. At the end of it, he asked a question that I have always struggled with. I've been asked it a number of times. I've even asked it myself a number of times. And every time, whether I'm the one... Doing the asking or I am the one being asked, I still find myself just really wrestling with my own answers to it. They're not quite as valiant as that. Uh, So I I wrestle with how I'm actually going to answer those questions or answer this one question. And last week was no different when Josh asked it. This was his question. At the end of your life, what would you like inscribed on your tombstone? We are talking about epitaphs. We are talking about the legacies that we establish. And I answered very quickly, just like everybody else did around the room, but the entire time I was uncomfortable with my answer because I've always been uncomfortable with it. But this week I settled it in my mind. Here's what I would like to see inscribed on my tombstone, but only if it is real. I'd like it to say, Phil Allspaw, 1968 to 2068. Not really, that doesn't sound that appealing. 1968 to whenever, but then underneath that date, if it said quorum Deo, in the presence of the Lord, that'd be all right with me. That's a good answer. Because you see, quorum Deo living begins right here, right now. It's not something that happens later on. It's something that starts right here, right now. Quorum Deo, in the presence of the Lord. Or if Tina is feeling really bold, and certainly she will outlive me, there is no question about that, she could inscribe this, and boy, this would make some people wonder if they go and visit it. She could put down at the bottom of that in marble. Write this down so you remember. Here it is. On the side of lions. 
rather than having them coming after me, I'd rather be on the side of the lions and let people wonder about that. That's quorum Deo living on the side of the lions, not waiting for them to come and get me, but understanding that I am in the presence of the Lord. Quorum Deo. Stand and pray with me. Father in heaven, I know we just slugged our way through a lot of teaching. I pray that that didn't get in the way of the application. I know, Lord, that you responded to our prayer earlier. And as I looked around the room, I saw distractions. Very limited. Thank you, God, for that. I'm just praying that the things that we read will go right to our hearts. It is easy for us to point fingers at the Israelites. It's easy for us to wag our fingers at the Samaritans. But when we really get down to the heart of what we just read, we find that we are not much different. We have the same challenges, both nationally as well as personally. And those challenges can get the best of us if we're not careful. So thank you for the warnings that we see in Scripture. As goofy as it sounds, Lord, I am grateful that you are the one in control of the lions. And I pray that you always remind us of that. When we're facing them, I pray that we will quickly recognize that there are some shifts in attitude that need to happen for us. But more than anything, I pray that we will simply remember that you love us and you want us with you. So I pray that that will be the case. Lord, these next few minutes as we offer an invitation, I pray, Lord, that people will respond as they need to. Some for salvation others for help with the lions. I just pray they respond. In Jesus' name, amen.